evangelism, for those of you who are guests and stuff, it is a, a religious type word. Evangelism is simply the sharing of good news. One beggar who has found bread showing another beggar where they can find the same bread. The news that God sent his son to die in the place of sinful men. And any man who simply believes, repents and believes in Jesus Christ will have forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God. That's simple news that we are charged to share. But that, to be honest, the reason I was a deer in the headlights is because that is actually one of the things that I struggle with much. Um, This is a confession of a missionary. (laughs) I struggle with prayer and I struggle with sharing the gospel. Um, Fear of man, pride, selfishness, you name it. These are things that I honestly wrestle with. It doesn't mean I don't do it. I have to throw that little caveat in there. But this is something I struggle with. And as uh, the Lord has been working in my heart through this last uh, term on the field, um, working through Luke, Luke is just amazing because it reveals the heart of God for sinful men. How far God will go to save people like me and what that means about my reaction to other people. And this story in Luke chapter 7 really was convicting and encouraging for me. And I pray that it has the same effect for you today. Take your Bibles, if you would, with me. Turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And if you would, stand with me as we read from God's Word. Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little and he said to her your sins are forgiven hear the words of jesus christ this morning if you have trusted in him for forgiveness of sins whatever you are wherever you are hear the words of jesus christ your sins are forgiven Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Sit. My outline for this morning is really simple. I have the setting, a clarification, and a declaration. Look at verse 36, and we'll start with the setting. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, that very first verse is just packed with connotations. 
Um, if you were to read this story, you can get the gist of what, what God is trying to communicate very easily. It's, it's a pretty simple story. But if you unpack the culture that this is happening in and the circumstances, it has a much deeper, striking effect um, as you unpack it. So let's do that a little bit before we work into the actual story. This story comes towards the end of a long section in Luke where Jesus is doing his public ministry and his popularity is exploding. People are coming because they want to see his miracles. People are coming because they want to be fed. People are coming because he teaches like no man has ever taught before. But at the same time, the hostility of the leadership in the nation is just growing, both the political and the religious leadership. They want him gone. Because if he is a prophet, then what he says is true, and they need to repent. And that does not sit well with someone who is full of themselves. So there is this hostility that's going on um, at this point in the story. And the reason it's so hostile is, as you work through Luke especially, you can really see this contrast that keeps coming up between the worthy and the unworthy. The good and the bad, the righteous and the sinner. And Jesus keeps leveling the planes and, re- and revealing that all men are in this category of unworthy. And then at the, the, the last line before we read our story, Jesus makes this comment to the Pharisees. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. Now, if somebody said to you, wisdom is vindicated by her children, I don't know about you, but when I first read that verse, I was like, Wisdom is vindicated by her. What in the world does that that mean? Well, Luke put this story here so that we can understand what wisdom is vindicated by her children means. The way we live, the way we respond to God and men reveal our heart's condition. Now, just a couple of cultural things that that help us understand this. This concept of hospitality is huge. And this story hinges on this concept of hospitality. In the East, the way that you treat your guest reveals what what kind of person you are. In Bosnia, they have a saying, obraz niajon. That basically means your cheek is not the sole of your foot. And the way you treat any person that comes in your house reveals what kind of person you are. It doesn't matter what you say, how you speak, what your profession is. How you treat people in your home reveals a lot about what you truly believe. It is that important and crucial on how you treat your guests. Another thing in this culture that we need to understand is you don't eat with anybody and everybody. To eat with someone is actually a sign of fellowship that you're willing to go inside of their inner circle, so to speak. Jews would not eat with Samaritans. Jews would not even use the utensils that Samaritans used because they were filthy, no matter how well you cleaned them. They definitely would not eat with Gentiles because they were pagans and they did nothing except what was unholy and unclean. So they would not break bread with these type of people. The third thing I, w- I want to point out with this, the, the cultural context, is just the way they sit at the table. It's totally different to how we do it. In fact, I don't think we can physically eat this way. But um, a lot of in, when my family went to Turkey when I was a teenager, we actually got to go visit a, a, a village. And in that village, the person that mom and dad wanted to see weren't there. So the guy across the street saw mom and dad uh, standing in the street and, and helpless. And they said, come on over, come into our home and eat. This total stranger. So we go into their house, and this was a great experience for me as a teen. They, the men went in the living room and the women in the kitchen, and they spread this tablecloth on the floor. And then they brought these big bowls of food out. It was, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was really good food. I love food, if you know me. Uh, I love food. But this was different for me because the next thing they brought out was spoons. And they gave one spoon to each person. And the way you would do it, you could either sit cross-legged and lean and eat Or you could lay on your side and lean on one elbow and reach and everybody eat from the same food. It was really awkward for me, but that's that's just the way they do it. And they would sit there for hours and talk and eat and fellowship. It was a time of intimacy and just fellowship. It's a great word for that. In the same way they would eat in this culture. Either they would be on the ground with cushions propped up next to something on the floor, or they would have a short table with benches that went around the outside, and you would lean inward to eat, and your feet would be cast out behind you, so to speak, so that everyone could see and eat face-to-face. 
You'll see, uh, you may already realize why I'm saying this. Now, the immediate context of what we see here, as Jesus goes into this Pharisee's home and breaks bread with him, is astounding. This Pharisee does not love Jesus. His only intention in bringing Jesus into his home is to find out some way that he can bring an accusation against him so that he can prove that he's not a prophet. Jesus, on the other hand, the fact that he was willing to go into this Pharisee's house. So many people talk about Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors and that he was all about. Yes, that's true. Jesus also broke bread with the fat-headed self-righteous of the day. He broke bread and three times in the Gospel of Luke. Now, that doesn't mean all three times it ended in some kind of confrontation, but he was willing to go into their homes and break bread with them. So we see this contrast of intentions, one of hatred and desire to hunt and one of love and a desire to show grace. And into this scene, you get the picture of the people sitting around their table eating, into this scene walks a woman, and this woman is well known. Now, as we work through the story, you'll see two things from the beginning. A public display of gratitude and a private thought of condemnation. Let's look at the first, verse 37 through 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And hold on for one second. Every time I've read this story before, I immediately assume that this woman is a prostitute. Is that what you thought? What kind of woman? It doesn't actually say that she's a prostitute. It says that she was known as a sinner. And I think it's just interesting that we immediately, when we think of sinner, we think of a particular type of person, and we fit it into that category. Uh, But she is known in the city and by the Pharisee as a sinner. Now, this term sinner is important in the Gospel of Luke. Luke brings this up more and more than the others. 14 or 15 times it's used, and actually Jesus uses this categorization. Um, It's not talking about the general concept that all men are fallen short of the glory of God and are sinners. This was what every culture does to delineate between those who are worthy and those who are unworthy. And this was a big deal in this culture um, among these people. There were, of course, those who were sinners because they were murderers or adulterers or uh, they broke the law or they were tax collectors and they abused their countrymen or they were soldiers and they abused their countrymen. Those are obviously sinners. But then there was this whole area of people who were either handicapped from birth, um, they were constantly unclean because of some kind of bodily function, um, they, they were really poor so they couldn't give the offerings that they were supposed to give, just this whole area of people that were lumped into this unworthy for whatever reason because they couldn't keep the law as well as I can keep the law. This concept of the unworthy sinner. So this woman, whatever her sin, takes advantage of the Jewish custom. And I didn't mention this, sorry. Um, there's an open-door policy in Jewish, uh, Jewish culture where anybody could just walk in, especially if it was a well-known house and there was like a famous teacher there. They actually would have chairs set up on the outside of the room so people could sit and listen to the conversation at the table and learn from them. That's, that's totally foreign to us. Imagine somebody walking in in your house and just sitting there listening. Um, But what is interesting is she takes advantage of this Jewish hospitality when she finds out where Jesus does, and she does it to show a demonstration of extreme gratitude. And as I thought about this, isn't it amazing when you desperately love someone, how you will do things outwardly that you wouldn't dare normally do? Is it not true? Even in our culture, a man will get down on his knee to offer the woman he loves a ring. And then you can go into a whole conglomeration of things that people do that they wouldn't normally do in front of people because of love. So let's look at what this woman did. She brings an alabaster flask of ointment. She has an intention to demonstrate her love for Jesus, her gratitude. Verse 38, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, I know it's, it's hard for us, but please try to imagine the picture of this woman doing this. Jesus is reclining at the table and his feet are cast back, like I said. 
This woman walks into the room, and we all have this circumstance when that person walks in and everybody hushes and looks at them. They're not welcome here. This person is such and such who just can't resist doing this kind of evil. This is that drug addict who can't get over his sinful. This is that fill-in-the-blank. But before we always think that it's the down-and-outers, realize that the down-and-outers sometimes do that with judging the so-called righteous. Here comes the guy with his suit and his Bible. He thinks he's all that and so much more. We do it naturally, all of us, when we see that person that doesn't fit our standard come in the room. And this is what's happened. And so what does she do? She doesn't say anything. She doesn't speak. She goes right to Jesus. And her intention is his feet. And she begins to weep profusely. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody cry. This is not a pretty picture. This woman is humiliating herself on the feet of Jesus. She weeps. And as her tears fall on his feet, the dirt starts to move. And so she weeps intentionally on his feet with her tears. And then she takes what is her glory, her hair, and uses that to wipe the tears and the mud off of Jesus' feet. How many of you ladies would be willing to wash some dude's muddy feet with your with your hair? It's not what what is this woman doing? She wipes his feet with her hair, and then she starts kissing his feet this is not sensual this is not something that you normally do this is the picture that you get when you have a king standing and someone comes in and in absolute homage falls down and kisses the ground kisses their feet feet is a big deal in that culture It's taboo in our culture. It's bad enough for somebody to mess with someone else's feet. But in this culture, it was, this was, no one messes with feet except the lowliest person in the house. The Pharisees actually had a tradition where if they had a new rookie, a a new student or disciple, that they could demand anything they wanted of those students as they taught them. The one thing that they were not allowed to demand of these students was that they take care of their feet that they undo the strap of their sandal and wash their feet. That was reserved for the lowliest of slaves. Feet are just not messed with. And over and over, her intention is Jesus' feet. But she doesn't stop there. What people see, what people hear, now she assaults another sense. She takes out her ointment, she breaks the seal, and she wipes it on his now clean feet, on his feet. And the smell of that ointment fills the room. Everybody is experiencing this woman's gratitude. And it's amazing the reaction it brings up. So we move to the next one, a private thought of condemnation. Why is there a private thought of condemnation? What makes him so angry? What's even more amazing than what this woman's doing is the fact that Jesus is letting her do it. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Her act of love just uncovers, rips the curtain back on the pride and selfish intentions of this man's heart. He sees her love and he judges who? He's already judged the woman. Who does he actually judge? Jesus. He has the goal to say, Jesus can't be a prophet. Why do I say judge that if there is actually expecting a negative answer? If you throw it into a translation, it would be something like, if this man were a prophet and obviously he's not. But what is so amazing, what so drives him up the wall is this concept of touch. You do not touch a sinner. And even for us, there are things that we can say, things that we can do. But when you touch someone, that is so much more than just words and deeds. Let me demonstrate for you. Yeah, it's you, brother. Stand up. I love you. What did I just do? Yeah, I invaded his personal space. I chose him specifically. It was safe. 
I, otherwise, it would have been you, Mr. Newton. <laughs> but I just stepped on all kinds of taboos and things. This pulpit is supposed to be a protection between you and the preacher, so to speak. But in touching him, there was an intimacy that was established that you just don't get in words and, and other things. Touch is an amazing thing. And Pharisees and religious leaders did not even come close to someone who smacked of sin and unworthiness. But Jesus, he did it all the time. There's an amazing passage just a little bit earlier of a leper that comes to him for cleansing. And Jesus touches him and he's immediately cleansed. Why does he touch him? It's amazing that he can touch him and Jesus is not unclean. That he actually becomes clean. Sorry, that's a whole other subject. But this concept of touch is huge and horribly offensive. And what you see immediately is that someone can't see in this situation. Simon can't see what Jesus so clearly sees in this woman's life. But what drives me crazy and what really hit me as I studied this passage is the fact that Jesus actually wants Simon to see. Clarification of what's going on. Verses 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He uses a parable and then he uses the evidence that's right before him to to reveal Simon's heart. Parable verses 41 through 43. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. It's as simple as it looks. This is natural. This is the way it works. So let's, um, let's look at this story a little bit so we understand. Who is the money lender in this story? Who do the Jews understand sin is ultimately against? God, this is how I do preaching in Bosnia. I expect a response from you. So who is the money lender? God, exactly. And who are the two debtors? Simon and the woman, exactly. Now, what we tend to focus on and what Simon focuses on is this superficial level of the debt, the 50 and the 500. And denarii in that time were the same as one-day wages. So one person owes 50 days and the other person owes 500 days. But what we tend to completely miss is that phrase in verse 42. They could not pay. Their debt was completely insurmountable beyond their ability to pay back. And to, complete, to, to open this up a little bit more so that we can understand this concept of debt, um, I want you to pretend that there's an atom bomb in front of this pulpit on the floor. Now, if you ever watch TV or movies and stuff like that, whenever there's a bomb, there's a ticker going on, it's getting down a lot. Nobody ever disconnects the bomb 30 minutes from it blowing up. It's always in the last 10 seconds. So this atom bomb is, is ticking to go off, and it's at two seconds, and there are two people standing right here, and they both have something that they can throw on the bomb to counteract the blast. One person has some tissue paper. The other person has a cardboard box. insurmountable debt. It does not matter what you throw on that bomb. It's going to obliterate you and everything else around us. So what does the money lender do? He forgives them. Now this is very interesting because forgiveness doesn't mean don't worry about it, it never happened. Forgiveness of a debt does not disregard the value that was spent. Who swallows the debt when it's forgiven? The moneylender. If Joe loans Justin 50 bucks and, and Justin gets to the point where he can't pay back for whatever reason and Joe says, don't worry about it. It's all right, man. It's forgiven. It's done. Does that mean that the $50 never existed? No. Joe has to swallow the value of that 50 bucks. So this moneylender is swallowing the debt of these people. So Jesus' question is what should actually bring conviction. It's not a comparison of who owes more or what. It's do you love the moneylender? For if the other debtor 
whose debt seems to be smaller, had truly understood the infiniteness of his debt, he would have rejoiced that this other person realized forgiveness. This is the story throughout Luke. The prodigal son and the older brother, the prodigal son comes back and the father rejoices and the older son is ticked off that the father would forgive him. It's that concept of if you realized your sinfulness and how much is the forgiveness of God to this person, you would rejoice. You would be happy that God was willing to forgive such as him because he forgave such as you. So Jesus is basically clarifying reality with this parable. This woman gets that she has a debt that she couldn't pay. Simon is yet to realize how big, how uh, grievous is his debt. So Jesus uses the woman's actions to further clarify. He brings undeniable evidence that is right in front of them. Verses 44 through 47. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. I love that phrase in verse 44. Do you see this woman? Just a side note I have to throw in here because contextualization is a big deal today among missions. And, and when we go somewhere, we need to fit the culture with the gospel in order to share it. We're, we're contextualizing right now, just so you know, by using English and using a pulpit and wearing a tie and the things where we sit. That's contextualization. But, and, and here it's very important, Jesus uses what he has done wrong as a host to reveal his heart. He's using the culture. But at the same time, Jesus is stomping all over the culture as well by insulting the guest in his own home. And it's just, this is just a side note. Truth and love always trump context or culture. And Jesus does it right here. So he uses three contrasts that have to do with hospitality to reveal Simon's lack of love. The first tradition was to provide water to a guest so that they could wash their feet. You know, they wore sandals or they went barefoot. And so their feet would just get really nasty, dirty, especially if it was wet. And to let someone come into your home and walk around with muddy feet was just just disregard for them and for your own home. This woman, however, when she came to Christ... Her intention was his feet, and she poured her most precious of waters on his feet, her tears. And then she took her glory and used it to wipe the mud off of his feet. See the contrast between Simon and her? The second tradition was to greet a guest with a kiss. This is big, still big in the East, sometimes in Russia. Um, they'll actually, men will kiss on the mouth. Um, I'm grateful I'm not in Russia. Uh, I, and it, people who know me, I'm not a very physical person either, so God has really worked on that in Bosnia because guys touch a lot, and it's just it's a f- sign of affection, and it's not weird like it is here. Um, Patrick and Justin really enjoyed that. Uh, so, but the, in, in this culture, to greet, to greet someone, it's just like us. It's a, it's a sign of politeness, a sign of welcome to greet them with a kiss. Those who were less than you, like students or something, would kiss you on the hand. And if they were equals, they would just come up and kiss on the cheek. You've seen this in, in Eastern cultures all the time. We have this same kind of idea of when someone cuts in, comes in, you let them know just how welcome they are by the way you greet them. You might have somebody come in and you look at them, you give them the, the head nod and you keep doing what you're doing. That's, I acknowledge your presence. Then you have the fist pump, which is interesting because it means anything and everything from teen upward. And then you have the handshake. That's the generally acceptable for whatever situation. We have the handshake with the elbow clasp. Uh Uh-oh, moving into the personal space. Um, Then you have the awkward side hug or the tap out. I love you, tap out kind of thing. And then next step of affectionate greeting is the actual hug where you go body against body and it's not it's it's just i love you and you're holding that person and finally you have the incessant hugging weeping kissing like a mother who is reunited with their child for whatever reason that they were taken away just that desperate need of showing i love you we have that here 
Simon didn't even give Jesus a kiss on the cheek. Cold, cold, cold reception. This woman, Jesus, I still think she's kissing him on the feet as he's talking. She is desperately kissing his feet in reverence. The third tradition was for a good host to provide olive oil to refresh the face of a guest. In that climate, it is so hot and dry and dusty that their skin would crack and it was just painful. And so one of the things they would, they would provide for a guest when they come in was just, just cheap olive oil that you could put on your face to just bring that relief, that relief to your face. Um, another thing I remember as a kid visiting Turkish homes, and I hated it when I was a kid, but uh, they had these little tubes of lemon oil. And when the, kid, when the family would walk into the home, the Turkish women would take the oil, dump it in their hands, rub it, and then wipe it on your head, and then wipe it down your face and say something in Turkish. And like I said, I hated that as a kid because it happened every time and mom and dad let it happen. But now, looking back, I realize that that was their way of saying, you are welcome in my home. Your children are safe. Here. It was a sign of blessing upon the children. It's just an incredible way of, of showing you're, you're here and you're welcome here. Simon didn't even give him that simple grace, that gift. This woman, she had the intention of bringing costly ointment and putting it on his feet. Only royalty would put ointment on their feet. The contrast is breathtaking, and Jesus bringing it up is even more shocking. Now look at verse 47, which through this verse 50 is reinforced. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. First of all, looking at this verse, we have to understand what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that she's forgiven because she loved much. Because her display was so grand, then she is forgiven. No, rather the extravagance of her gratefulness, the extravagance of her gift, reveal an already existing reality. Something that we're not told in the story beforehand, we can figure out now. The reason she's doing what she's doing is she knows something that you don't, Simon. She's forgiven. Look at her. She's obviously grateful. Her life demonstrates the reality that Simon can't see. Can you hear the words of Jesus in verse 44? Do you see this woman? How do we see people? He then says, he who is forgiven little loves little. This, is, this shocks me at the gentleness of Jesus, Because he's not saying, because you were forgiven a little bit, Simon, you should at least love a little bit. No, he's saying, if you were forgiven a little, you would at least love a little. The fact that there is no love at all should show you something, Simon. You haven't been forgiven. Her love, her demonstration, just horrifically reveals the deadness of Simon's heart. So Jesus gives a declaration in verses 48 through 50. He's done with Simon. Now he focuses his attention on this woman. And this, I love this. This is God in the flesh focusing on a filthy, despicable sinner. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Apparently this woman had heard Jesus' teaching as he taught the crowds or something. She had heard his teaching repent and believe for forgiveness of sins. And she had done that. She had simply believed in Jesus. Now think about this. He hasn't died or risen from the dead or sent out his apostles or his church spread throughout the nations under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. None of that has happened yet. Her confidence is solely based on the person and words 
and works of Jesus Christ. She knows because he said so. That's it. That's it. Not feelings, not am I good enough, none of that because of what Jesus said. Her intention, sole intention, was to show gratitude. And and Jesus turns his attention to her and confirms what she already believes. Her sins are forgiven. So my question is, who's the money lender now? Who is this man that he would dare to say that the money lender is going to swallow your debt? It's really quite offensive what he's saying. The implication is striking. And the guests pick up on it. It's actually similar to, if you, most of you know the story in, in chapter 5 of this group of guys whose buddy is paralyzed and uh, they try to get to Jesus so he can be healed and there's this huge crowd so they climb up on the roof, they dig a hole through the roof and then while Jesus is teaching, they let this guy down right in front of Jesus. Jesus looks at the faith of the guys lowering down and says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And people in the room are like, Who are you to forgive sins? They're thinking this. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. So he says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? No man on earth has the authority over the law of nature, the laws of nature, to tell a crippled person to get up and walk. That's what you call creative power, creative authority. Only God has that authority. But so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. And he gets up and he walks. You cannot deny the authority of this man. But the the sting is still there. How can you do this to forgive? Like we said before, you can't just forget the offense of this debt. Let me draw it to a human perspective for you. Imagine a group of men come to your home. They break into your home and they bind you. They plunder everything you have. They abuse your family and they kill one of your children. Then they steal your identity They go outside your home, they use your identity to do further crimes and further deface you in front of, defame you, however you say it, in front of uh, the world. Finally, these guys are caught and they're brought before a judge. It is obvious that they have done wrong and justice must be served. The evidence is undeniable. And the judge looks at them and says, guilty, sentence commuted. Guilty, no consequence. What would you do? That's not right. That's not just. There is value that has been exploited here. There is something wrong that needs to be made right. How can any man say that sin is forgiven? David understood what sin ultimately was. Our deepest, darkest thoughts, our deepest secrets, our sin, whatever it is, is ultimately against God. When David wrote Psalm 53, he had used Bathsheba, slept with her, another man's wife. Sinned against her, obviously. He used... um, He then tricked Uriah, one of his closest friends, and had him murdered because it was Bathsheba's husband. And then on top of that, he uses his general Joab to put that person in a dangerous situation so that he can be killed. Now, we would look at that and say, wow, David really sinned against those people. And he did. But David understood something very important that we must understand. All sin is ultimately against God. And he wrote... Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Do you understand that? Before God, our sin is unbelievable. But the next thing that is even striking about this is the Jews understood that, yes, God had provided a way by obedience that we could have forgiveness of sins. What was that? What was the means? Sacrifice, thank you, blood had to be spilt. A life 
had to be given to pay the penalty of that sin. It was so obvious, and it's very clear in scriptures. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. How can Jesus say your sins are forgiven? Romans 3, 21 through 26 says this. Thank you, Wade, for reading Ephesians 1. That was, where did he go? There you are. That was right on the head. How can God be just and overlook sin and still forgive sins when there must be blood shed? Romans 3, 21 through 26. Obviously, all men are sinners. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have no idea of the horror of our sin before God. There is no righteous person sitting in this room in and of themselves. There is not one worthy. Not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption, they're bought, they're paid for. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He satisfied his wrath towards sin in the blood, the life of his son. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be a just judge. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This goes directly to the question that every man asks. How can God be just and allow evil to happen in this world? The answer, he is incredibly patient. He is incredibly patient. And he has provided a way that you can escape the judgment and condemnation that is coming for all sin in Jesus Christ. All sin will be paid for. Either you will pay it for eternity or Christ paid it in full on the cross. Now this story closes rather abruptly, if I might say so. If you, if you like stories, you, you would actually hope that Simon would just break down in tears and, and something would happen to make it a happy ending. But Luke does this several times where he just kind of leaves it open-ended. And he puts these two people up on a a pedestal, so to speak, so we can see this demonstration of the conditions of heart. And we can learn from this. Jesus gives the woman a summary of the good news. Your faith has saved you. Your faith in me has saved you. Go in peace. Simon and the city see her as a good-for-nothing sinner. God sees her as his child. It's it's beautiful. It's incredible. So I want to close with some implications. Um, First and foremost, behold your God. He is a God who is forbearing. He is a God who is forgiving. And he will never let his children go. The fact that God became a man and sat at Simon's table should just astound us. This man judging his maker at his table? It should, oh, the love of God. And the fact that this story would be preserved by his spirit so that I can stand here today and preach it to you. Hear the love of God. He wants you to forgive. He wants you to understand that in Christ you are forgiven. Behold your God. I was going to put together some references from the Old Testament just to show that the God of wrath of the Old Testament was a God of forgiveness. It's ridiculous the number of times the Old Testament refers to the forgiveness and forbearance of God. I couldn't even start to to list them. It is the very nature of God. 
forgiving, loving. Secondly, and I must say this, have you been forgiven? With whom is it easier for you to identify in this story? Do you have, do you realize the debt that you have towards God? And the only way you have been freed is Jesus Christ. If you have never asked God for forgiveness of sins, if you are cold in your heart towards God, I am begging you today, please do not leave this place without making that choice. You have a choice. God right now is laying it before you. He loves you. He sees more sin than you can ever imagine. Your heart is desperately wicked and deceptive and you have no idea of your own condition and the only thing you can do is beg plead god for forgiveness and he will give it if you sit here today and this is the stirring of your heart and you don't understand you have questions please do not walk away that would be satan's greatest joy for you to go and get distracted and never deal with what's going on in your heart right now find one of the men one of the women that you know and trust and talk to them please it would bring no greater joy than to rejoice in the forgiveness of another sinner. And finally, how do they know you've been forgiven? My charge was a charge to evangelism. So I need to, this morning, by God's grace, there is a great privilege of going away for several years and coming back because we have this kind of outside look on Baraka. And I am so grateful for God for the ways that he has been using Baraka. But I have some concerns as well that I want to share with you in love this morning. First of all, I want to speak to the leaders of Baraka. The men, their wives, whether they be elders or whether they be just spiritual leaders within the congregation. We are known as a theologically teaching, missions-rich church are we known at the same time by so much more of what we are against instead of how much we love those we disagree with when people come in in into your homes you go to a conference you go to someone's house you go to a different church and all they hear is what they've done wrong or how they're not theologically correct or, or those kinds of things and that those things are probably true but if they never hear you rejoice over what God's doing, if they never hear you praise God, if they never see in you as the spiritual leaders that you are forgiven sinners, what kind of people do you think are going to be discipled? It echoes what you say and what you live throughout the congregation that you serve. The second thing I want to do, and I'm really grateful to Howard's, I'm grateful spiritually but not my flesh is not grateful for the series he's done on acceptable sins and one of the ones that really struck me was his sermon on overcoming vain glory and like i said we are known as a rich good church be careful everything you have has been given to you it's a gift do not forget from whence you came Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. How is your heart towards the Lord? Are you affectionate towards the one who gave his life for you? I don't know. Well, look at the people in your life. How do you treat the people around you? Lastly, and in that line with regards to, it's not negative, and I, I, I just want to encourage you guys to, to examine your hearts and to face these things head on because this is the temptation of what a good church can, can go towards. Realize that the people who are in your life are exactly the people that God wants you to love. Your spouse, your children, your workmate, 
And I know every one of us in this room can name someone that's just really, really hard to love. That's exactly the person God has put in your life so that you might know just how hard it is for you to be loved. So these last things. Uh, how? What can I do? Some people sit here and they hear a sermon like this and they, and they rejoice. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. I want to be more like this woman. How? Well, I just so A couple of suggestions, some things that have helped me. First of all is you know people who are Bible-rich people, but at the same time they just they have no barriers whatsoever with regards to people, whether it be safety, whether it be uh, social status, whatever it is. They love people. I can th- I'm not going to mention anyone in this congregation, but John and Rachel Sherwood, Jean and Martha Purvis, Emmanuel and Sucherity Indigary, you know that they have given their lives to the study of God's word and loving people. It's obvious. If you can think of someone, go to that person, take a, a chunk of time, and sit down with them and ask them, what is it that you like to do that drives your passion for Jesus? What discipline or habit do you have that brings you joy in your walk with the Lord? Another question you can ask is, if you were to go back to when my position, whether it be husband, father, my age, what would you do differently? I asked that of Jody Crane, and I was blown away by the answer. I got. Secondly, another suggestion. Every person is unique in this room. Find some way to put your glory on Jesus' feet. What is your gift? What is your job? What is your finances? What, whatever it is that you have, find some way to use it for Jesus' glory. This is an, the, the, basically, it's an intentionality. You have to think about it and intentionally do something. And lastly, and this one to me is kind of fun, get creative and think of ways that you can lavish your love on Christ. Think of some ways that no one will ever know. This week, needs will come up right in front of you. Nobody will ever know. And you can say, Lord, because you've loved me, I'm going to gladly do this. And this is what I love about this. Jesus' response to the woman shows that God likes it when we do things out of gratitude and love. We're not trying to earn his favor. We can't. It's just simple gratitude for what he has done. To close, I want to uh, read a poem that I got from a commentary and then a quote that actually I got from Dr. Dahl's sermon on this passage from a teacher in his Bible school. Um, but here, here's the poem. Deal kindly with the erring, O do not thou forget, how, however darkly stained by sin, he is thy brother yet. Forget not thou has often sinned, and sinful yet must be. Deal kindly with the erring one, as God hath dealt with thee. And the quote is, nothing lavished on Christ is ever wasted.